0: The dream's over. In 1971,
1: music said something. It again. Keep on, keep
0: it on. Keep it the revolution will not be televised. The world was changing. We were creating the 21st century in 1971. Changes.
1: Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Need Some Introduction. I'm back again with Ian. We're going to be discussing a documentary called 1971, the year that music changed everything. And I'll go into my criticism of that kind of mindset, by the way. It's just a pet peeve of mine. But at the same time, I like, I think the quality of the documentary is really good. And this filmmaker, by the way, I was already interested in this. The documentary because the uh, the director the main creative force I think behind the documentary is Asif Capadia I don't know if I'm pronouncing that name correctly but I've been a fan of his work he directed a documentary called Senna which is about a like motocross uh, motocross racer who's like the most famous racer in the world who died in a car accident in Brazil back in the 1970s and it's an incredible documentary I think it's available on Amazon Prime. And then he followed that up with, I think he won an Academy Award for the Amy Winehouse documentary called Amy, which is also incredible. It's really, really, and what is telling in both of those documentaries, especially the Amy documentary, is this archive footage that he somehow finds. And I think that it, it, it pays off here too. In, 90, in this 1971, there are, you know, these are stories that you, as any kind of music fan, you've heard these stories before, but the uh, some of this archive footage, I have not seen such intimate footage, uh, you know, before.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I would say um, that's cool. I didn't know uh, the director's uh, previous work. I didn't look into that. I just went into it after for- working over four ninety nine to Apple TV. <laughs>
1: I'm going to try to watch the rest of this during the seven day trial period. <laughs> yeah. But now I have a friend of mine who wants to do, he loves the Ted Lasso show and he wants to do the next season of Ted Lasso, like record a podcast about it, uh, which starts later this month. So I may have to hang in for at least, uh, <laughs> at least for a little while longer. So
0: but, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that is definitely one of the things. They have a lot of uh, behind-the-scenes footage or, like, news clips even. The first episode really is kind of broad. You know, it's good. It sets the table. And, uh, you know, you have all these really crazy things going on in American society. Everybody's totally sick of uh, Vietnam at this point. You have all the Nixon shenanigans. Pro, on and on really in the midst of that you have uh like we touched on you know the Beatles officially broke up and yep. uh, we're getting you know the Imagine album from from John and then uh, what's going on uh by Marvin Gaye I mean that's really the uh the kind of thesis statement I think of the first
1: yeah it's it's uh amazing to me like you mentioned uh first of all the thing I'd like to mention is I gl- had an argument on father's day with somebody about you know they basically were claiming that you know uh, and we have such short memories and that's what i was trying to drive home that i think we have a very short historical memory and they were trying to say that like things literally have never been worse and i say believe it or not i mean we there's always room for improvement <laughs> but i think it's very easy to kind of say if things were worse if things are worse today than they were a year ago or 9 months ago or whatever it's very easy to say that you know it's catastrophic but you, all you need to do to kind of get a, uh, you know, your head around where things are at, even with you know issues with the previous administration and everything that I have, but you just have to go back and look at this war, right? And we talk about the culture war today. Think about the culture war back then, where you have these young men that are, you know, tens of thousands of them. I mean, when you adjust for population, you're talking about over 100,000 dead between uh, uh, Vietnam War and the Korean War. You're well over 100,000, right? And and if you take that into account, the size of the population, it would be. You know, much worse than, for example, that population got hit by COVID. Let's say, and you have a situation where those people are being sent off to war. There's a draft in the in the case of yeah. the Vietnam War, and there's this cultural divide where you know Nixon. People forget this. Nixon, until Watergate, until he actually uh, steps down from office, is very, very popular. Like he has a huge pop. He, he has a you know he won overwhelmingly uh, the re-election, so he is massively popular, and yet. You know, not (laughs) when you look at generationally, you know, there is a huge culture divide between the silent majority, as he called his, his uh, following himself. And he basically diminished these protesters saying like, yeah, they're very loud, but they're a sliver of the population. But that sliver of the population was making art (laughs) and very transformative art at this time, right? whether it's the movies that come out of the late sixties and early seventies, or it's the music. And, uh, and, and before I want to pass it back to you, but just really briefly just just to set the table once again, I just want to call out just some of the albums that came out this year, uh, uh, just kind of to set that up, but you already touched on it. Imagine by John Lennon comes out this year. Uh, You know, Let's Stay Together by Al Green. If you're a big fan of that album, that's probably his greatest album. Uh, You have Young, uh, Gifted in Black by Aretha Franklin. Uh, You have Shaft, the Shaft soundtrack, which is, you know, influential, especially for disco music, by the way, very, very influential for disco. Uh, you have what's going on by Marvin Gaye, maybe the greatest album that came out that year out of many. We have Nilsson Schmilson, which we already discussed in the previous podcast. And it goes on and on. Bob Marley puts out his first album. The Rolling Stones and The Who put out one of their best albums. Janice Joplin puts out a great album. Carol King puts out Tapestry. Joni Mitchell puts out Blue. This is a crazy, crazy year, and, and this is just the tip of the iceberg. There's many others that oh my god, Maggie May, right? Rod Stewart, we just bashed him in the previous podcast. <laughs> Maggie May is a great album, right? Uh, uh, every picture tells a story, I should say. It's a great album, and uh, Maggie May, of course, from there. Oh my yeah. god, T Rex! I forgot about T Rex. There's it just goes on and on. The list just goes on
0: and on. Uh, Bowie,
1: yep. make... of course.
0: Yeah, no, it's it is insane to 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 look at it from that perspective too because. It's not just, uh, oh, wow, there's like a myriad of different things going on in the pop charts. These are artists that now we're on 50 years later, right? are all kind of cultural touchstones. Exactly. It really sparked for a lot of that in, you know, 71. The Beatles already had, obviously, like a crazy career, but then the kind of fracturing of them and then seeing them go off in different directions... Really started rolling around 71, you know, 70. Um, I, I looked at that too, like, you know, um, all things must pass was late 1970, right? So almost right. You, you can put that, you can almost roll that in. Well,
1: that would uh, be my criticism of this. It's <clears throat> and it's a general criticism I have, and I'm going to throw this out there because I definitely want to have a devil's advocate type. Uh, episode with you at some point in the future. And the the thesis of that episode is going to be the Beatles are overrated. (laughs) And I say that, by the way, I say that as a huge Beatles fan, right? I love the Beatles, but I I do want to put that out there. And the reason I mentioned that is I think it also ties in with kind of my perspective on history, where I feel that we have this need, especially in, in the United States, but in general, to have this theory of like the great man, right? So this, whereas I think that oftentimes it's more about, Uh, like the telephone probably would have been invented by someone else if had been invented by Alexander Bell. As a matter of fact, it was copywritten by, you know, on the same date, basically patented, I should say on the same date by two different inventors. Right. And it's just like kind of the luck of the draw. So basically it gets to a certain point, things are happening and then they kind of coalesce. And the reason I mentioned that is some of the things you're talking about. It's very easy to say, can you believe 1971? And it is shocking to just see it. I, I totally agree, but I could say the same thing about 68. I can say the same thing about 75, 76, right? So there is like a good eight-year window where, it, and but to that point, there is a lot of stuff happening, right? There's fracturing of uh, society, right? And uh, and we're starting to see these kind of, you know, and, and we don't, and we don't see that kind of coalescing again of of trying to co- have a co- cohesive um, single culture again until like the '80s, which doesn't last very long at all, by the way. Yeah. But I think that that. Uh, um, uh, so anyway, it, I think it's it, it it even though I kind of disagree with that perspective, that 71 somehow changed music when you can really just move the frame a little bit and see almost the same thing. But it yeah. gives you an excuse to talk about all these things that are happening. Right. So,
0: yeah, it's pure framing. I mean, it is right. kind of conscious. It's like oh, it changed everything that exactly year. was it January 1st, 1971. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Out until, you know, October of that year. So <laughs> When did most people hear? Probably 1972. At that point, I don't know. Um, and, they, it, and they
1: cheat a little bit here, even. I mean, they play. Um, what's that? Uh, what's that uh, Iggy Pop song? This is in a later episode, and I'm just getting this. I haven't seen the episode yet, but I've uh, I've seen the playlist, and they play like. Uh, oh, and they also have like uh, a Bob Dylan song that was recorded in both cases. They're recorded in 1971, but they're not even released until like the, the mid-70s, right? So they're they're really cheating there to kind of, you know, I mean if you go by when you record something, then some of these songs should be like 69, right? And then if you go by when they're really you know, so it's it's all but what like I said, you know, if you squint, <laughs> it still is undeniable that there is an incredible amount of great music coming out at this point.
0: Yeah. And that's the thing. You gotta kind of just take it like all right, they need to put it in some sort of framework. Right. Uh- And, you know, for the most part, I mean, it really is like a pivotal year outside of the arts. But the way they reflected it is one of the most notable aspects. You know, I mean, I I think um, the whole Marvin Gaye thing, uh, what's going on being the real kind of keystone or centerpiece of or starting point of this uh, documentary and how they frame it is because, you know, that's a real interesting demonstration kind of like a generational split that was really going on because you had um marvin being part of the uh motown you know assembly line an awesome creative assembly line but you know nonetheless um you know barry gordy had set up a system and it didn't involve uh protest songs or social music or anything of that sort and Marvin was the first one really to to break that mold completely. And that opened the floodgates, in my opinion, for Stevie Wonder. Yes. Um, we also had a, a cool record release this year. Not one of like the canon ones that people uh, usually mention. It's not. It's outside of the talking book, but good record nonetheless. And you could kind of see already there was some drift in his subject matter or production styles. That was something that Marvin Gaye, like, really kicked down the door in for Motown artists.
1: And that's kind of what shocks me when you think about that is, like, for example, how, um, you know, him releasing uh, What's Going On was considered controversial, even by uh, Barry Gordy, because he didn't want to mess up his brand, which was, you know, pop music. And, of course, he'd become massively popular by having this kind of... um, Black music that was uh, palatable to white audiences, right? The audience was mostly white, right? And um, uh, so it's massively successful, and he's afraid of, uh, and instead, of course, the record is massively, sells huge amounts, right? Don't punish me with brutality. Talk to me so you can see. and then the Stevie Wonder albums come out and some of those records are the absolute best-selling records of the 70s, right? Until you get those kind of mega albums of like, you know, Rumors and um, some of these other records. But until that that happens, I mean, these albums sold like five, six million copies. I think what's going on has sold, I mean, this is over time, but they've sold over 10 million copies. I think at least one of those um, Stevie Wonder albums has also gone over 10 million. But you think about like, that was unheard of, you know, other than the Beatles, let's say, other than the Beatles, it was unheard of for anyone to sell that number of albums. I mean, people bought singles, people didn't really buy albums. Uh, yeah. until the uh, the probably until the beatles and then the 70s so uh it's just so funny that these things that they're like you know this will be commi- uh, you know commercial suicide and then it's like there's a huge appetite for it and this happens so often right where everybody thinks they know what the market wants and then they're totally wrong right i have
0: not money
1: we make it for we see it. you take it oh
0: do yeah and, and you know the funny uh usually the common denominator there is that the people that think they know what the market wants are the people that have reaped the success of previous
1: of course they want to maintain the system as it's right absolutely
0: you know i don't want to think too much and like change my approach at all so it should be the same and i'll keep doing well you know but that's not definitely not how it works
1: and that even more so now, right? Like you think about the rise of corporatism, you know, which, which has kind of been disrupted by these internet, like the internet itself has disrupted a lot of these things. But in the eighties, we talked, we touched a little bit on that last uh, episode, but like in the eighties, everything became very corporatized, right. And, and, and it was successful for the country, right. The country economy started to grow for the first time in a long time. The seventies were, mm-hmm. you know, a stagnant uh, time for growth in the U S and the eighties were kind of a boom time. But everything got corporatized to that point, like you were saying, where, you know, everything became a formula and everybody's just kind of looking at what the formula is to make the same movie every time and the same album every time and the same song over and over again. And, uh, but this is still, that's what's kind of interesting about this time, uh, period of time, you come from, uh, you know, the the culture is really directly tied into the music that you're hearing because there is no formula yet, right? We haven't come up with the the formulas yet, right? People are still just doing whatever. And, you know, Jimmy Page, uh, and I mean, all the rock gods but you know Jimi Hendrix I meant to say actually Jimi Hendrix is like you know having this I mean you you think about that music now because it's so you know whether uh, not punk rock which never really became that that famous but J- but Jimi Hendrix has number 1 records and honestly you look at that's some pretty anti-social music right like you think about what was popular at the time this is not making any kind of commercial play and these so- records are going to number 1 the 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 Doors another example of someone who's like intentionally antisocial who's having number one records
0: right yeah and um yeah it, it's interesting and they kind of do touch on some of that stuff too where you know there's always kind of a um somewhat reactionary split or you know it's for re- the act of rebellion that you know and it's basically kind of a rite of passage for everybody that kind of does play out in in uh, these like broader societal trends and the interesting part of you know this particular era everybody that was real like champion of like the hippie movement or flower power or whatever were finally like hitting their 30s right (laughs) and kind of you know getting them burnt out on other stuff and it was just like a an end of a childhood period of a generation that's kind of been like maybe over idealized yeah popular culture but just you know who can it's definitely a force of popular culture
1: i think this was interesting to see to see some of the music that did come out here even the stuff that they, they they get into in this documentary but you obviously have marvin Gaye's album which is overtly political you have imagine you know from john lennon which is overtly political You have George Harrison's album, which is overtly political, but still the end of that flower generation, like, you know, it's not a, um, uh, it's still kind of clinging to the old recipe, right? It's like, you know, give peace a chance, right? And As is lenin although is starting to sour on it you know he, he, you hear him uh, what's the song where he actually calls out um um it, it's actually in the documentary oh no it's a, it's when he's in Times square right and he tells everybody to um he goes so what flower power didn't work he goes it's okay we'll start over <laughs> with something else right
0: and then also yeah um also imagine you know being kind of a really broad utopian kind of he and i think he mentioned this you know he was kind of writing it almost like a a child song right right
1: yeah he calls imagine like a kid's like a, a lullaby right
0: Universal and the, but then on the same record, you have songs like uh Crippled Inside, but then also yeah. they showed in the documentary How Do You Sleep? Yeah, um, which is one of the first diss tracks that I could ever recall because it's clearly directed at Paul McCartney, <laughs> right? And you know, that's outside of hip hop, so that's pretty notable, that's an, that's notable, <laughs> yeah. like really shot across the bow. And um, you know, it didn't come out till '73, but um. The McCartney song from actually Wings, you know, Band on the Run, uh, Let Me Roll It, is kind of, in my opinion, a shot back at, at John. But
1: I'll have to excerpt that when, we, when I put it together. <laughs> but what I was going to say, though, about all of this potential rebellious music, especially considering it actually surprises me that other than culturally... You know that there are subtext in the culture splitting up into all these different genres and there's the obvious political stuff like what's going on and uh, imagine what actually surprised me in looking at all this music is that uh it's ex- a lot of it's very experimental you see reggae emerging you see like can right like can uh which is a re- I-, I had not heard that album you know that which is maybe the most famous album but i knew them from that other what's that um they're like kind of like they're more proto-punk uh, stuff that came later but that was actually a really interesting album. And they're, you know, it's almost like jazz at that point, right? So they are um, kind of merging jazz and folk and some other influences together. So that's all really interesting, but it's not political, right? It's it's experimental, but it's not really political. And as a matter of fact, a lot of this great music here, I don't see as being political at all. You know, you see, um, well, maybe, maybe, yeah, uh, The Who is being political with, uh, you know, Teenage Wasteland and uh, They're All Wasted. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, you look at Ellen John, which, you know, has one of his best albums uh, here, and that's not political. Uh, uh, and if anything's political, it's pure subtext. It's this emergence of these female uh, performers, right? Like you have these women coming and writing their own stories, right? And whether that's Aretha Franklin or whether that's um, Joni Mitchell, of course, or, um, uh, you know, Car- Carole King. So it's like you have this emergence of these female performers that um, are telling, you know, writing their own stories, uh, songs and, and telling their own stories. But once again that's not overtly political right it's 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 uh, subtextually political but yeah i was yeah. expecting if anything i was expecting there would be more <laughs> there would be more uh more open uh protest music right
0: yeah like um i don't know that was the thing it seemed that energy really got wrung out that type of protest folk music was you know that was like the mid 60s stuff
1: right yeah and i think i feel yeah it's strange that now at the height of the protest movement in the streets, let's say that you're right. I think that you know the the culture has kind of said, "Okay, we're done with that," <laughs> right? And it's like they're kind of and honestly, you know, maybe this is a bigger theme, but I think maybe this is the and actually Adam Curtis right talks about this that maybe this is the emergence of politics being personal, right? It's like about self actualization rather than political movements. So maybe it starts here too because to your point, we have the end of like the hippie movement. And now what you have a lot of in the 70s is a lot of like singer-songwriter type music that gets very popular. You know, rumors, for example, Fleetwood Mac, which comes years later, but that's all, you know, interpersonal dynamics and things, right? So I think music becomes much more personal in a way.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And there is, you know, uh, there is some rejection of the commune hippie collectivist. Right. Right. Ideal, right. Or, you know, whatever um, flavor you get out of that. And it really did directly kind of flip into uh individualism. And then, you know, that really gets crystallized when we get into the eighties. But it, there's right. really cynicism away from like collective group action. Right. Like I'm I'm in my own head and this is I need to be better for me. And you know, I think uh yeah, it's just the, the pendulum swung really the other way. And it's it is interesting, like Altamont is really pointed yep. to that and that's yep. years prior to you know the year music changed everything
1: <laughs> right right but, but but maybe to that point even though I'm critical of that you know being too specific in that frame but it does seem to be an inflection point like you were saying it really doesn't feel like we were just talking about this uh, previously uh before we started recording we talked about the fact that like is something a 70s record or an 80s record we were talking about that as you know a decade dividing and to that point maybe 71 is the beginning of that because it is the end of that like hippie movement. And like you said, politics becomes about individual freedoms. Right. And as a matter of fact, then you also see something else happen that in the same regard where it's like a backlash against not only the politics of, of uh, you know, that sixties flower power type movement, but it becomes about, you know, like Led Zeppelin, for example, and other rock bands too, it becomes about being overtly over the top. Like it's kind of like you're fully embracing the hedonism of, you know, I'm rich, I'm famous, I'm going to have fun. And like you said, it becomes whether it's personal, you know, whether you're Joni Mitchell talking about your own biography and your songs, or whether you're um, these uh, artists that are going to be like, I'm going to be as big and as famous as possible and I'm going to live it up, right? It's all about like me, right? It's the me generation, right? So
0: Yeah, and you know, the, the even the though- they seem really uh, different in my opinion, like to the listener, it it both feeds, you know, a real sense of escapism and you're not dealing, you know, so you can have, you can go into the, the kind of biographical poetry of Joni Mitchell and apply that to your own life. Or you can escape to being, you know, a dancing King on the mountaintop.
1: (laughs) Right. Lord of the Rings.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like T-Rex, you know, like glam.
1: Oh yeah yeah
0: so um you know even though one's like super uh extroverted and one's super introverted it really did both they both like just serve like kind of an escapist point rather than more um you know like topical songs and like protest music that was i think more palatable or it reached a little further into the mainstream a decade ago
1: and to your point prog rock emerges here too you know you have like metal by pink floyd comes out and that's really like where they establish their future sound the sound that makes them like massively popular versus their kind of psychedelic um almost tweet like the psychedelic uh popped or i guess it would be almost like psychedelic folk right from those early records and uh you know they become much bigger and you have like yes puts out they're you know fragile which is uh you know very important but to that point, like you were saying before, it almost becomes like science fiction now, right? The, the, these these songs are no longer about, I mean, I guess they are. I mean, like, you know, Yes is still talking about, uh, you know, personal. It, but once again, it is, you know, internal, right? Like, uh, i seen all good people, like I'll be around about, or i seen all good people uh, turn away, right? Like it, it's, it still is, their politics is still very uh, internal, right? So
0: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, even the allegories are, are more, you know, self, I don't know, Yeah, it's from the first person perspective rather than, you know, kind of a macro perspective.
1: So that all being said, how do you think, and does he fit into this at all? How does Bowie fit into this, right? Because Bowie is going to emerge 71, 72 between Hunky Dory and then Ziggy Stardust, right? He is going to emerge as like the Bowie that is going to be so influential for maybe the most influential artist of the 70s. And he's going to ride many different trends throughout the 70s. But how do you, how does he fit into this? Because, you know, here is someone who is experimenting with these different genres, but he's right. Like he is literally inventing personas and then inhabiting those personas. Right. So, which is not at all in vogue at the time. Right.
0: Yeah. And um, the thing that is kind of interesting there too, like they, they touch on in the first episode, it's uh, he's touring in support of, uh, you know, the man who sold the world that record um which was released the year prior and and that's hunky dory and there's you know the contrast there is kind of just what i was referring kind of getting at where hunky dory is kind of a um it's in the same vein of more like personal personalized smaller stories right has that singer songwriter quality to it and then it's not it doesn't really kind of light the world on fire right you know he basically goes completely the extroverted route with Ziggy Stardust right so it's basically yeah it was, you can see how it, it's just more or less like uh shifting the the energy from inward to outward
1: I guess in a way yeah I guess you're right in a way it still is kind of self-centered not that, not in a negative way not and not that that sounds as negative as it is because to your to your point it still isn't like he's t- I mean he might be metaphorically talking about certain political things but you're right it's like he's no there's no longer us talking about you know uh, uh war or, or something like that he's you know, even though he's like inventing fantasies right and it starts even before then you're, you're right that he still is you know uh started off like almost as a folk singer but what is it 68 right it's 68 when he does space oddity right so he's already flying out to space um uh you know before uh the uh the moon landing right because that record that record flopped and then it became a, a hit when when we actually went to the moon right but yeah so bowie's already kind of experimenting with that and maybe that i mean maybe he got rewarded for you know kind of going in a weird direction right like doing like an homage to a 2001 a space odyssey basically and then um uh, it turns into a hit right so then he starts going even more in in that direction right
0: yeah he he always was very kind of uh yeah. literary i think in his songwriting and not directly autobiographical
1: oh yeah absolutely
0: but yeah it goes from kind of like the quiet you know uh, major time ta- space odyssey is basically an acoustic guitar and yeah. elitron you know and it's not that that blown out um and it was kind of considered a novelty at first yeah
1: absolutely he, th- he was like considered like a one hit wonder and then he kind of really changed his whole career around
0: yeah and it went from kind of going down the coffee house I'm going to be a folk singer road that wound up dying with the the 60s yeah and then he re-emerges in the early 70s with you know Ziggy Stardust and that's basically what kind of launched him uh, as a worldwide character
1: and, but then his story, it's so weird because some of his earlier sto- songs like, for example, like Life on Mars is, um, I think it's one of the best selling singles in the history of the UK, like uh, one of their biggest hits and, and one of definitely one of his biggest hits. But it's been, it's charted, you know, I don't know, like 20 times over the career, uh, over Bowie's career. And I think right after he died, it jumped back into the top 10 again, right? So it's been this massively successful song, but that was not a hit when it came out. It came out like, you know, after uh, he becomes a star. They kind of reissue his earlier singles and then they, those become hits as well. So it's just interesting how, yeah, they how sh- his career on. went. How's that?
0: They shuffled him back up the board once he had some selling, you know, they they reissued stuff.
1: Which is how it always used to be, by the way. So it's very funny when I look at someone's, um, you know, just randomly, when I look at some of these artists, I look at the disco- discographies and you'll see, like even Al Green, for example, like uh, when um, Tired of Being Alone, took off and I think I was his first number one it might have been a number one I think it's definitely his first number one and he had had a bunch of like modestly successful R&B songs but none of them had like been even cracked the top 40 I don't think until uh he has uh tired of being alone this year this very year that we're talking about 1971. And then, um, which then becomes kind of a formula for him. That's really becomes a sound for the next few albums. But then they reissued a bunch of his earlier songs and some of them jumped up the charts, right? So it's like, it's kind of like a normal staple that when someone breaks, you try to get all their other stuff back up on the charts again, right?
0: Yeah, and you know, the thing is, it's like, um, that seems strange now because there's no time to pause to consider, okay, we got to press another, how many records we're we going to invest in? There's no physical inventory involved, really. You know, right. recording stuff digitally, you can instantly publish any amount of information, basically. So you wouldn't have that, you know? And I don't know which is better. It, you know, it's kind of interesting, you know, being allowed to have a stream of conscious, like, oh, I made the song today. I'm going to put it out tomorrow. Right. Not have to... You know wait and coordinate and you know marshal your resources but then again you know that's quality control right step in too so it is interesting but yeah like i don't know bowie and the whole glam thing
1: yeah
0: uh which you know, it's it's funny because he was only really he killed yep. off stardust yep made uh his next album aladdin sane and that was basically it and then it was on to a different kind of character
1: yeah yeah but- that, that, i mean we could go and we could probably do a digression on, on glam at some later point but i do find that funny that he like survived glam he was smart to kill off the ziggy as huge as it was because yeah. it's kind of like glam doesn't last right it kind of fades away and the t-rex unfortunately um uh, what's his name dies right and that that kind of ends to, you know and and that was what a, what an interesting artist he was and by the way going back to like making connections to all our previous episodes I hadn't at the time made this connection until I started to um, re-examine T-Rex as an artist. But um, talk about influences on Prince, right? You talk about like, um, uh, you know, uh, some of these other artists, right? But you have this, uh, you know, uh, someone who is notoriously a womanizer, someone who's very small, (laughs) like Prince, right? Someone who's like a guitar virtuoso, right? And, uh, and a very weird, you know, and, and as a, a very innovative uh, musician, but very strange, like, you know, like uh, some of these early records are like all fantasy, <laughs> like lyrics and stuff, right? Very weird stuff until... Uh, and
0: again, like that goes, This he, they also exist on that 60s, end of the 60s, early 70s axis. So the original Tyrannosaurus Rex, yeah. Mark Bolin on acoustic yeah. guitar and some dude named, uh, I think he took the name Mickey Finn, which is kind of like a play on a um, J.R. like a Hobbit name, uh, the Finn Clan of Hobbitshire or, or whatever. Um, but yeah, they're doing like you know, total like fairy tale music, hippie, dippy crap. Right. And then that the '70s hit and things get a little more electric. And uh, yeah, he's playing like old Chuck Berry riffs and. Yep. Singing about Cadillacs again. You know? <laughs> yeah. You're my baby. You my love. Oh, girl, I'm just a Jeepster for your
1: love. And you love to drive cars. That's what killed them, right? So, um,. Uh,
0: too soon. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, but let's play some actual music for each other. So tell me something that you discovered either through the documentary or on your own, that um, was either like a rediscovery for you, like something you haven't heard in a while that you're like, Oh, man, I forgot how much I love this song, or maybe something new that you discovered for the first time.
0: Okay, so yeah, the um, one of the first things that are introduced, one of the first songs introduced in the first episode is Ohio by Crosby's stills Nash and young, um, which we, you pointed out wasn't actually released, uh, in 1971, right. but what was released in 1971 is an album by the Isaac brothers. Hmm. called Given it back, which is all covers. Um, so that's a goldmine for me, but they do a, um, a medley of Ohio and uh, the song Machine Gun, which I think Jimi Hendrix may have been the original singer on Machine Gun. They also cover uh, I've Seen Fire and I've Seen Rain. James Taylor. So, yeah, I'll play a little bit of the start of this.
1: I haven't heard this covered before, by the way. Can't you see the soldiers? I've seen them. Ten soldiers, I hear them like how they mix the machine gun um you know kind of guitar attack uh over the same uh you know like the the same uh rhythm line of uh, of ohio so that's pretty pretty cool yeah i hadn't heard that before wow i gotta you know and every this is isley brothers are somebody that i never really dig into and uh every time i hear something by the isley brothers or you know even when they just like
0: they're so underrated and and yeah not given enough uh enough props i mean because everyone knows they're again, it's almost like a Nielsen thing where like everyone's heard Isaac Brothers songs. Right. Shout. Yeah. <laughs>
1: right. <laughs> <laughs> this doesn't sound anything like shout, that's for sure. But, um, but I mean, I, he, uh, uh, Ron, right. Ron, is that the lead singer, Ron Isley? Yeah. Because I mean, I've seen him like, you know, he still has recorded, you know, in the past decade or so you've heard him a guest on, you know, rapping uh, a rapper's um, songs and with the gorillas and stuff like that. And he always has such an incredible, um, like a uh, soulful uh performance even now it's great voice yeah. but yeah i have not given um his their earlier stuff enough of a listen for sure
0: i have a new like a literally like a single that just came out like two months ago
1: yeah yeah still it was, doing. I
0: think, on it but it's him and ernie i think they're the only two left
1: the um and this is something that they're going to talk about in this documentary for anybody out there who wants to catch up on that. It's on Apple Plus, and I, we do recommend it. Um, very interesting. And I think already in episode two, they start talking about how, you know, the, the drug problem that a lot of these folks got into, right? And, um, and unfortunately, like, you know, it's great they see, like, you know, you see the Isley brothers or the surviving members of them that they're still performing 50 years later when, you know, un- tragically, you know, you have, you know, uh, I- within a few years, you have Jimi Hendrix is going to die. And, um, you know, Jim Morrison is going to die and Janice Jopson is going to die and Mama Cass is going to die. And, you know, and and the list just goes on and on. And it's really crazy that these all these people in their 20s and 30s are, you know, at the peak of their creative uh, talents. And then they're they're all they're all going to die in a very few, very few years. So it's, you know, and unfortunately, once again, how history just keeps repeating itself. uh, You know, you look at just the past year, you know, not only do we go back and look at Tom Petty and um, uh, Prince dying, which we've talked about in one of these episodes earlier uh dying of drug overdoses but you just look in the past year where some of these like you know uh some of these up-and-coming rap stars have uh all died in the past like two three years And uh, it, it's pretty sad when you think about that
0: yeah yeah and um you know going before that it's uh you know um chris cornell but then yep. earlier grunge guys like you know lane staley and uh, kurt cobain and no it's it's tragic that 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 is the motif that keeps repeating in, in life and art.
1: Yeah. I, I think, unfortunately, I, in some cases, you know, you look at Cobain's history and you look at um, and if I'm just throwing recommendations out there, there is a, uh, a Cobain documentary. Um, that's very impressionistic. It kind of reads his diaries, like kind of things he wrote when he was younger, like in, in high school, some of the lyrics that will turn up in his songs later on, but a lot of it is just him like writing these little kind of poems and like um, short stories montage of heck montage of heck so so yeah i mean i'd recommend that a lot it's really interesting and it you know like that, that that almost speaks to montage of heck is like kind of like that it's this it very impressionistic and uh, it is very troubling there are scenes by the way in that movie that are like a trigger warning for anybody who has issues with this you see them with their daughter and they are obviously doing heroin and um you know they've they've recorded themselves uh high uh, with, with like basically in the same room with their daughter, who's like sitting on the bed while they're doing this. And it's like kind of shocking to, to see the way they were living their lives. But at the same time, you know, to speak to this, this unfortunate pattern that we see over and over again. And like I was saying before, sometimes I think it's mental illness. Like, you know, he seemed to have mental illness and other of these folks have mental illness issues. Chris Cornell, for example. Um, and that was a suicide versus some of these drug overdoses, but unfortunately, some of this, I think, is this romanticization of of this kind of lifestyle. So I think a lot of times artists kind of succumb to this idea that they need to have these these type of lifestyles. Let's say to to, and I think that kind of becomes a trap in and of itself.
0: Oh yeah, definitely. And you know, uh, like someone like um, like Graham Parsons, yeah, who is pretty much you know doing his uh, burrito solo career in Burrito Brothers at... Right around 1970, 71, Um, yeah, and he died in '73. He was 26, and yeah, far too many, far too many people. There's that whole like Bohemian idea where people are just really uh, pushing the limit on on all that stuff, and um, that's kind of that. That seemed to me like Jim Morrison's kind of thing. Was like, I'm the new Dionysus, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah, that was like embracing it fully. If I was going to play something, just this is just a, um, I'll play something more pop (laughs) later, but I wanted to kind of have a a crazy discovery when I was just looking at doing some research of things that came out in 71. Uh, I was looking for more things that might have had some kind of uh, cultural impact that I wasn't aware of. And um, I found a Japanese band called Flower Traveling Band. Have you ever heard of these guys?
0: Flower Traveling Band? vaguely familiar i don't think i've no i don't think so i i'm thinking of like uh some yellow machine orchestra or something like
1: that (laughs) so i had not heard of this band before by the way but this album came out in 71 apparently very influential to like black sabbath and other bands like that so the band's called flower traveling band and the album is called satori and here's a here's a one of the tracks from satori Yeah, so that's something i'd never heard before but obviously very influential on metal right this is like uh, judas priest before judas priest right
0: oh yeah yeah i can see um i can hear glenn Danzig taking a liking to that
1: <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah um the uh um yeah so i was looking for kind of like weird uh uh nuggets here um um uh, i can play something other st- strange stuff here but uh, i was going to play also just like kind of a discovery not a discovery but like a rediscovery of something that is not as out there there's so many i mean there's so many really great songs i'm gonna pick something here you know here i'm gonna play this one because this is a song i obviously knew but a song that probably most people don't know and it's working class hero by john lennon
0: they are telling you still but first you must learn how to smile as you kill
1: so that's an uh, that's an overt uh, um, political song, right? That's really talking about the like silent majority kind of sending their their youth off to, to war, right? Um, so, but I mean, it, like I said, it's it's a song that I don't think gets uh, covered that much. But, uh, David Bowie, by the way, covers this song very well uh, in his um, with that band he had with um, Adrian Ballou. What was that band called? Uh, Machine Tin Machine. they have yeah. a good, they have a good cover of this. Yeah,
0: yeah yeah no that's one of my um favorite john lennon solo solo songs too and that's you know it's interesting it's kind of like a, a diametric um of imagine yes you know or imagines very prosaic and hopeful and you know and it's in the title um and then this song is very uh literal
1: yeah he i mean even he drops the uh, f-bomb in there i, I, t- I trimmed around that but uh, yeah, it's like, uh, but yeah, he's like, you know, he's he's not pulling any punches basically. And it's funny, this came out, that record came out um, uh, at the end of nineteen seventy, and uh, Imagine would come out towards the middle or late nineteen seventy-one. I think a single comes out in the summer, but I think the album comes out at the end of the year. But uh, this album comes out, and basically, you know, the the um, Let It Be. Uh, is um, still on the charts, right? Let it be, it comes out in like March or April of 1970. And then this is like the first thing he drops after he leaves the Beatles is uh, he's like, yeah, this is where he's at after he leaves the Beatles. So, Which I guess everybody's kind of making their, staking their claim, going back to the kind of going full circle back to the beginning of our conversation. But everybody's kind of drifting off in their specific way. John Lennon's kind of staking a claim. This is where he's gonna be. He's overtly political, kind of confrontational. George Harrison's fully in full bloom as a, you know, um, flower power guy. He has the, the, the this year, very importantly, has the concert for um, yeah. Bangladesh, right? Bangladesh. Uh, and so that's a very important um, event this year, right? And um, Ringo Starr is just making, you know, it don't come easy. He's just making pop songs. And uh, and I think it's the first number one that any uh, Beatle has is, is that one, right? So he's successful at it. And then Paul McCartney and Linda McCartney are doing Ram, which I'm I'm not a huge, I don't, I mean, for, out of all the Beatles, I mean, Ringo, Ringo was the type of guy, like, I'm like, you go get him. Congratulations. You're still putting songs on the chart. Good for you. I'm I'm just, I'm glad that he's just trying. Right. But McCartney as talented a songwriter as he is in general, his solo, career has not impressed me he's got I mean he he has some good songs but then again he he put out like 40 records right so of course he's going to have some good songs on there over the course of his career but
0: yeah yeah and yeah you know he reverts into kind of things that at least I don't particularly enjoy about Paul McCartney which are like the overly like goopy sentimental stuff and things like that he's always he'll always find a way to pepper that into a record that he makes
1: and uh-huh. even like, you know, I think this is a number one for him is that Uncle Albert medley. Uh, and, and even that is so it's I mean, he has other songs on this album that are better than that. But that even that's so corny because it's like he's doing the same thing. He's doing a medley. He's like, you know, doing all these different musical genres all at the same time. It's like it's and, and it's not as good as um, the medley off of um, uh, Abbey Road. Right. So it's just like, mm, you know. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. He, he, he shows his hand.
1: Yeah.
0: Continually.
1: So you want to play anything else? Any other any other tracks we want me to track down here for you?
0: I was going to say another kind of artist that's um, that emerged in 1971 that's a little off the beaten path is a uh, Judy Sill.
1: Hmm.
0: and um, she put out a self-titled record, I believe, um, and was basically you know in the Laurel Canyon kind of scene and uh, amazing. Uh, Pianist and uh, song songwriter, and uh, put out the song um, Jesus Was a Crossmaker, which is a really nice one.
1: Hmm. All right.
0: Debut album. So and
1: Silver angels over the sea, please come down, fly and
0: love
1: for me time I trusted a stranger cause I heard his sweet song and it was gently enticing me though there was something wrong but when I turned he was gone blinding me his son remains It' was interesting about her delivery i i don't I knew nothing about this artist, um another singer shorter songwriter that's emerging in this time, but um female, I should say because there's a lot of these that are coming this is kind of the the maybe the first wave, second wave of uh feminist uh, songwriters coming up and and kind of uh claiming a stake or at least riding that wave into popularity but anyway, you know what I found very interesting about her delivery is it reminds me of Ben Folds. yeah. <laughs> I think that might be where he gets some of his... Uh, um, his I wouldn't be surprised if he's been influenced by her. I'd have to actually track that down, but uh, yeah, interesting.
0: Yeah, no, she's she's great, and um, she only managed to put out, I think, this and another record in her lifetime. She was a very wild person, apparently. Um, uh, and, you know, there's other songs about uh, UFOs and... <laughs> Yeah, but it's all in this kind of um, kind of baroque uh, style. It's I don't know. It's pretty trippy. Um, but Judy Sill, yeah, she was uh, really kind of heralded, I guess, by I think it was I think she was um, David Geffen's first record label. I hmm. think he was the guy that signed her, and they were really kind of thinking she was going to be be like this next great, like Joni Mitchell type. Right. But I think, uh, yeah, like she wasn't promoted in that way or other stylistic things probably got in the way of that. But another very interesting artist that uh, kind of was born out of the end of the 60s.
1: Interesting. She has an album in 2018. Was this like a greatest hits or was this, did she actually come out of retirement or something?
0: Oh, that's, that's post, posthumous. um, She, 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 She died in 76 or something like that yeah
1: yeah I see she only had seventy three and seventy one that's her only other records. That's unfortunate. What did she die of? Do you know?
0: Um, uh heroin overdose, I think oh my goodness. yet again so and it's it's riding the same wave that's in this uh, first kind of few years of the seventies that seems to be taking a lot of uh, a lot of folks over that were you know flower power people before hard drugs took hold.
1: I played a couple of songs. Do you want to play another one while I?
0: Yeah. So, um, you know, on that uh, that Isley Brothers record, Giving It Back, there is one song on there that wasn't a cover um, of theirs called Cold Baloney, which is a cool song. But the notable part about that is uh, Bill Withers was playing uh, guitar on it as well. Huh. In 1971, he released uh, his record Just As I Am.
1: Right. which has a huge hit on it.
0: Yeah, and here's that one. Ain't
1: no sunshine when she's gone
0: It's not warm when she's away Ain't no sunshine when she's gone And she's always gone too long Anytime she goes away wonder this time where she's gone wonder if she's gonna
1: stay yeah that's a great one i love that song by the way i absolutely love that song and i have to hear that record i heard the album itself is actually good so i I need to and like unfortunately like a lot of these things it's stuff that um it you know, you hear that one song and it, like only that one thing kind of, <laughs> you know, is the tip of the iceberg, but it also is the one thing that kind of survives right it, it, on, um, uh, on the radio. And that's another thing I was kind of exploring today out of coincidence, not out of coincidence, actually, as part of this exploration was I was just looking at the top 100 songs of 1971. And it's amazing that even songs that are very popular, like, for example, uh, we already talked about this in a previous episode, in one of our covers episode, but the, um, the Bee Gees song, it was like you know one of the biggest hits of the year and it goes down the list Maggie May and, and that's what this is actually going to lead to my next track I'm going to play but Maggie May by Rod Stewart you know after disparaging him in the last uh, episode you know uh, what a great record that every picture tells a story is and th- why to this day he's maybe one of my, the most biggest disappointments as an artist to me uh because he had so much potential and uh, but that song not only is it a great great song but um That was the second biggest hit of the year in 1971, so it was very extremely popular. But not only does he put out that record, he was incredibly prolific at the beginning of his career, he's also still um, putting music out with the faces. And this song, Stay With Me, is also from 1971. So,
0: awesome.
1: yeah that's a great one and uh yeah but every picture tells a story by the way that's a great song uh, as is you know maggie may and mandolin wind and uh reason to believe by the way right to believe someone like you
0: makes it hard to live without somebody else
1: But yeah, he's, 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 this is a a really strong record and (laughs) pretty much nothing else he put out after that was as good. Like, yeah,
0: like, like we, we touched on before it's just like, he had a golden voice and like he had a great band for such a small window of his career. And then, oh, well, you know,
1: (laughs) I mean, I, And once again, I don't know his biography, but I'm pretty sure those folks would have continued to make music with him considering how massively successful he was. And I just feel like he, I don't know, he just drifted into other stuff and none of it was very interesting to me. And it's got worse and worse, by the way. It's not even like he pivoted into, you know, do you think I'm sexy or something? And then he pivoted back. It's like he just, you know, by, you know, that, that, do you think I'm sexy is pretty interesting by his standards compared to you know at least he's like experimenting with like disco or something by the time he gets to like the you know he's just doing like really boring ballads in the the beginning of the 80s it's just one terrible song after another
0: so yeah this is uh you know on the heels of of Marvin Gaye kind of establishing artistic freedom at Motown Stevie Wonder was like right after him on that and kind of concurrent you can probably say but um this is one of my favorite songs from his 1971's uh album where i'm coming from called do yourself a favor Your mind. Get hey, yourself, oh, so, yeah, I mean, that's when you can tell is lyrics are definitely getting, um, more, uh, they're going away from like simple love songs and more of the, uh, you know pop stuff that really motown was was really famous for
1: and he's really important to funk too is that i think right is that um you know um cool and the gang uh actually have a really you know uh, maybe proto disco definitely proto funk um record that came out in 70 i don't know if it would ca- qualify in the 71 list but um and then of course you have like shaft but you you think about um uh you know he he's ahead of the curve with what is going to qualify as funk i mean you look at Parliament, right? Parliament is not funkadelic yet because they are not funky yet. But um, they are. Um, but you know, like but funk is coming, and uh, and and he's Stevie Wonder is very very important to that. And you hear a lot of it right there in there, right? With the the keyboard right. is going to be key. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, unfortunately, rock and roll music is very sexist, <laughs> and women did not emerge until really right about now. So, uh, and in general, uh, and I gravitate to also, by the way, mostly male performers. So maybe. On the next episode, we can uh, kind of talk about singer-songwriters and we'll focus on women. And we can, I mean, you also have Leonard Cohen and Nick Drake and, and Cat Stevens. So there's there's definitely going to probably be overlap with male performers as well when we go into into that with the next one. But we should also focus on the ladies because the ladies finally get to have uh, their moment in the sun here in the late 60s, early 70s. Mm. And I'm going to wrap it up with Joni Mitchell because Blue, by the way, I think it's the 50th anniversary of Blue this very week. Right? Yeah. So um, uh, so Joni Mitchell, right? And uh, this is a pretty, uh, this is maybe not the most well-known song off this album, but it is definitely a very well-known song off this album. And, and maybe my favorite Joni Mitchell song and it's River. <laughs> Like a little Christmas carol here at the beginning. (laughs) It's
0: coming on Christmas, they're cutting down trees, they're putting up reindeer and singing songs of joy and peace. Oh, I wish I had a river. I could skate away on But it don't snow here It stays pretty green I'm gonna make a lot of money Then I'm gonna quit this crazy scene I wish I had a river I could skate away on I wish I had a river so long my feet to fly oh I wish I had a river I could skate away on yeah some really Hans Christian Andersen shit <laughs> <laughs> right her vocals make my ha- hair stand up on my arms you know what I mean yeah. and- absolutely yeah. uh, impeccable huh? can't They're, stand
1: yeah i mean her her like you said her vocals incredible uh, and her songwriting incredible also right um and I, we talked about this already before but uh, prince a huge huge Joni mitchell fan right and uh, we it's all the things we talked about with him too right he's like you know impeccable songwriting and you know incredible vocals but um you know he uh, uh, you know he, he was a big uh, Joni mitchell fan but beyond that it's just like you know her this just song Uh, I didn't realize this, by the way, Uh, (laughs) trivia on Spotify, by the way, as I played this yesterday, that they have a little, you know, now they have like uh, visuals that play. Yeah. And they were basically talking about the story of this song. And apparently she was sick with, uh, she was like in a, um, was it a polio ward? I forget. She was in some um, uh, um, ward where she was isolated when she was younger. And, uh, and this is her either she either wrote the song then began writing it even as a younger girl, or she's reflecting on that, um, you know, being trapped, you know, uh, at Christmas time inside of this, like, uh, medical ward, right. So anyway, it's a uh, but but going back to the theme of like, you know, this emergence of like the personal narrative as, um, as like, a, a you know, it, it, maybe people used to look down on whether you would, you know, write something so personal as your. Uh, you know, uh, material for for a song, mm. and like you know, the, in, emerging here, like in this year, you know, specifically, but probably even before. So, but really, clearly emerging here is these very personal narratives, right? And like I mentioned before, we see James Taylor, we see Joni Mitchell, we see Carol, K- um, uh, Car- uh, Carly Simon, we see uh, Carol King, we see you know, um, mm-hmm. uh, Nick, Nick Drake. You know, we see many uh, Leonard Cohen, right? Of course.
0: I'll tell him what was he up to?
1: Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah, I guess he's like, I mean, this is just a year after. um uh,
0: Broke up, right.
1: Yeah. The, the sound of silence. Right. So he's, he, I don't think he's put out his solo record, but it's coming. It's coming soon. And uh, he'll be influenced by this. Uh, although I guess they were always kind of interior monologues anyway, their music in general.
0: Yeah. It's a, uh, yeah, it's really, really interesting to um kind of see that shift in, in um, popular approach, I guess. Right. Um so yeah there was some big protest songs and mass in the leading up to the civil rights movement and then it seemed that the civil rights movement got passed but then things didn't really get all that much demonstrably better and things seemed to descend into cynicism and kind of uh internalization <laughs>
1: It kind of surprises me in a way, like, I think I maybe never finished this point at the beginning, but I was talking about how, um, you know, some of these R&B artists didn't really, you know, you hadn't really seen overt protest music. And the only protest music you kind of see this kind of dissatisfaction, uh, whether it is Gil Scott Heron, or whether it is what's going on, or what's to come later with Stevie Wonder and some of these other artists, that a lot of it is around the war rather than around the civil rights, and even like the civil rights uh, anthems, you know, whether it's RESPCT, or whether it's um, um, uh, Sam Cooke's change is going to come, it had to almost be coded in the day. And it's kind of surprising, because that it takes this long, because we're already years after the assassination of like, you know, Martin Luther King, for example, and and some of these other things. And, And speaking of that, even the assassination of Uh, John F. Kennedy, right? So it's surprising that, in other words, that the music isn't angrier (laughs) than it is, right? Uh, Although it is getting dark, right? I actually have like a whole section here of music that is starting to get dark. Like, you know, even when you hear Pink Floyd, you know, with One of These Days, or you hear obviously Black Sabbath or Led Zeppelin at their darkest, that the music is getting darker too.
0: We'll we'll talk about There's Riot going on by Sly Stone. That's the darkest one of their
1: oh yeah yeah and which right which is uh, which is this year also
0: one child grows up to be somebody that just loves to learn and another child grows up to be somebody you just love to burn mom the not dance to the music anymore
1: (laughs) right oh and 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 maggot uh brain too is is pretty uh, i mean uh, the song not the album necessarily in general but that song it goes into some pretty dark uh, territory too right
0: i think there's also march to the witch's castle is on that record that's all about um vietnam yeah but yeah that's interesting because i don't know maybe it seemed easier to galvanize against the the war as a, a kind of external thing rather than discussing more internal problems that are still happening either way. You know what I mean? So it's maybe more palatable to even just radio play.
1: And unfortunately, I hate to say it so bluntly, but I think, you know, just given racism, that that probably was that being anti-war got you a mainstream audience. Whereas, you know, being a, uh, complaining about the civil rights movement got you a black audience, which is probably why Barry Gordy was afraid of what's going on coming out and then maybe t- taking one of his biggest stars and potentially making him into a quote unquote black artist. Right. And instead, no, it crossed over. It was massively successful. Right. He has multiple songs off of there that are some of the biggest hits of the year.
0: Yeah. And um, you know, even uh, one other cool thing from this first episode. And again, this throws into contrast what we were just talking about, right. Of how activism changed and how um, it seemed people's focus culturally was more introverted rather than extroverted or cooperative, but Ali Frazier fight where mm, right. he was a center. So you'd think he, he was like at that night, he seemed to be literally the punching bag yep. for the American kind of center, right. Or silent majority. And Joe Frazier was the guy that was knocking this, um, you know, draft dodging.
1: Yep.
0: So-and-so out you know and yeah, uh
1: yeah that, that's actually a very interesting point and they 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 only talk about it briefly in the documentary but you're absolutely right and that is very fascinating just to go into ali i mean that's a much bigger topic but they to go into ali's biography and see exactly that where he was he went from being first of all you know even though in retrospect they say he like they like to frame it as he like ruined his career by changing his name you know becoming a Muslim, and. Um, And, you know, becoming a a, a draft dodger and, you know, basically saying my enemy is the white man, right? Like that's uh, obviously, uh, you know, alienated him from a white audience. But they were already trying to like, you know, they were always looking for the great white hope. They were already looking for white uh, boxers to... um, to, to usurp him. Right. So it's not like he had that many white fans. <laughs> anyway, they were there waiting. They were tuning in every single time waiting to see, um, you know, him get knocked down is what they wanted, but he was such a great entertainer, right. That he won them over and even more so right in throughout the seventies, as the war became more unpopular, incredibly savvy, by the way, an incredibly savvy showman that he was able to, you know, alienate people. It, it's like almost like I feel like all the scripting that was done for For wrestling, (laughs) in like the nineteen nineties and stuff, was all based around that, right? You start off as a bad guy, you become the good guy, right? It's like it's all—it's all just like the template that Ali set. But that was him living his life, him trying to survive. But like I said, he was able to turn his—the hatred of him—made him incredibly rich, and then he won them over. He won these people who hated him. Incredible turnaround when you think about him in the eighties being so beloved, right?
0: Um, Beyond beyond whatever uh, media uh, that got him initially famous. And yeah,
1: he, he literally took people who despised him uh, 10, 15 years earlier and turned them into his biggest fans. It's it's a pretty amazing turnaround. All right. So this is a very interesting time in history, as we've already touched on. It's so much to talk about. We could like literally spin off just the Ali Frazier uh, fights uh, and, and the, the rum, rumble in the jungle just that could be its own episode and the music around that too by the way right so yeah. there's a you know there's a whole concert and everything so the, oh and speaking of something to track down for you possibly you might be interested in is quest love made a it's his first movie have you seen this
0: oh the summer of soul
1: yes so it's a documentary that just came out this week right yeah so we should look at that right it happened you know kind of this forgotten concert where hundreds of thousands of people showed up um having taking place almost at exactly the same time as um uh, Woodstock, right? And um yeah, so uh, that that's something to track down and, and investigate also. And maybe we could talk a little bit about that in the next episode too.
0: we want to do like uh recommendations on stuff, yeah. Apropos to this is that documentary, uh the US versus John Lennon. Mm. Yep. Which is all about uh, you know, his battles with Nixon and um, you know, them trying to the to, to deport him and yeah. all. Because of anti-war activities and supposedly seditious behavior, or something.
1: <laughs> and if we're doing recommendations, I just have to pull it up here because there is a movie you can watch for free on Amazon Prime called David Bowie: The Sacred Triangle, and oh. it's yeah. So it's called the whole title. It's a very long title: is David Bowie: The Sacred Triangle, Bowie, Iggy, and Lou, nineteen seventy-one to nineteen seventy-three. And it basically, the basic frame of it is saying what you were talking about, Bowie being seen as this oddball who was a one-hit wonder that lucked out and had this one huge hit. And he was kind of like in the wild experimenting, like he's doing a folk record. He's cross-dressing on the cover of The Man Who Sold the World. And so Man Who Sold the World, by the way, great song, right? Great song. But, you know, he's all over the place with these you know experiments and how he kind of you know, became friendly with E. Pop. Actually, produced some of his music coming up right after he falls out with his record label, and of course, Lou Reed is just leaving um, the Velvet Underground and, and going solo, and he's going to have a big hit in a couple of years, right? Right after '71, and right. it's not a great documentary, but the music's very interesting, and it's one of those documentaries where the content's good. The the documentary itself's not awesome, but the the you know the the um, some of the insight is interesting. Some of the docu- some of the old footage is interesting, right? So
0: yeah, exactly. he's uh, like. Well, he we produced, um, you know, Perfect Day, that whole that uh Lou Re record and uh Transformer, I guess it was called, or yep.
1: Transformer, yeah. And then he did, and he also uh remixed um uh the Third Stooges album and also like you know produced uh, uh well, I mean, they went to Berlin together, right, to to to, uh, to, to try to get Iggy to kick uh, his heroin habit, right? So, um, yeah, so it's you know, so they, they, there was this, like you said, there's like uh there's a synergy that forms there and it's very important to the rest of the the decade right so
0: yeah cool man Um, this is fun
1: yeah awesome